Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the costume designers, production designers, cinematographers, sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, authors, composers, even choreographers. We talk to them all. And of course, we always celebrate the independent filmmakers uh, and their beloved low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget films. Uh, and today, we've got some independent films that we're going to have the both fil two filmmakers with us again this week. Uh, joining us shortly should be Joan Carr Wigan, whom I adore. I have known Joan and uh, her producer husband, David Gordian, for many years now. And Joan has another new film out, Just in Time for Valentine's Day, A Grand Romantic Gesture, uh, which I am in love with this film. And it is definitely, it is designed for the ARP age bracket. There's something for everyone here, but the primary focus is for the mature audience and the spin with a grand romantic gesture, it's predicated upon, it's a twist to Romeo and Juliet, where a local theater company, class, they're going to do scenes. But rather than have a young Romeo and Juliet, let's have a 50-ish couple as Romeo and Juliet. And, uh, you know, foibles and fun, take take the take the lead um so i can't wait to talk to joan about that and at the midpoint of the show writer director cole specter should be joining us from across the pond to talk about his quote-unquote anti-rom-com i'm not in love that is basically from the male gaze of a poor hapless man in a relationship with a girlfriend that only wants to get married and have a baby because her biological clock is ticking. But he just, he's not sure what he wants to do. So uh, we're going to talk to Cole about how this one came to be. I love the casting and I love the ensemble camaraderie in the film. So I'm excited to talk to him about that. But uh, is, that, is that who I think it is on the phone? Well, let's jump right in then. And a big, wonderful, warm hello, Joan Carwigan. Hello, Joan. Hello, how are you doing? I am so much better now that I'm talking to you. I am so happy to hear your voice again. Oh, it's nice to hear your voice, too. And I immediately imagine I'm back in Culver City and it's all warm and wonderful as opposed to snowy Toronto. <laughs> And and how is that that intrepid producer David doing? 
he's doing very, very well. You know, we, we, you know, COVID was, COVID was a drag as it was for everybody, but, um, you know, we have, we have, we have a new grandson. Uh, <gasps> life is picking up. Oh, congratulations. That is wonderful. Well, and you, yeah. and you have another new film out and Joan, I am in love with this film. I am in love with it. Oh, I'm glad you like it. Oh. Really. I mean, even though it doesn't have Checky in it. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, come on. Nothing's going to top him <laughs> for sex appeal <laughs> no, in a true. film. He's about like sexiest man in the world, sure. <laughs> yeah. But a grand romantic gesture, it is perfect for the ARP demographic, for my demographic, you know, the older audience. And you have made something that is so fresh. It is a very fun take on Romeo and Juliet where you tap into Shakespeare to essentially chapterize the film. Uh, and you've got incredible cast. You've got Gina McKee, who I will see in anything since I saw her many, 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 many years ago on a, on a PBS show and she just mesmerized me with her performance so I try to never miss her um and then Douglas Hodge who plays opposite her is just he's a joy he's got he's just such a little nebbishy kind of guy but he is so sincere and such a joy and you see these two together and you fall in love with them um, this is, and I'm not giving away any spoilers when all I will say to you is the final scene of the film. Oh, uh, I grabbed my heart and I cried. I was so happy. Oh, that's sweet. Uh, you know, where, where did the idea for this film arise and to give it the well, spin that you've given it? Well, as you know, some years back, I think about 12 years now, I forget. I don't know. We did this movie, If I Were You, with Marsha Gay Harden. Mm-hmm. And she played Lear in some scenes. And it was the first time a woman ever played Lear on film. And that, and I, I really enjoyed that a lot. And, you know, and that kept going over my head. Like, well, what is there? I thought, is there a way to have a woman play Hamlet? But it's hard to make, not that, make that a thriller. And I really want to do thrillers. We have a, the world has enough of that stuff. So, um, <laughs> and I thought, oh, what about Romeo and Juliet? And it was really kind of cool because uh, Doug had played Romeo twice. But Gina, I asked her if she'd ever played Juliet when she was young, and she said, oh, no, she was all punky back then and had purple hair, and nobody would have offered her the role then. So that was kind of cool. She got to play it. Wow. Wow. Yes. No. I mean, Marsha Gay Harden was fabulous in If I Were You, and the red bedroom will forever stay embedded in my mind. Um, (laughs) But with this film, you you love using color. Uh, you know, in a yes, previous yes. engagement, you used the natural, lighter tones mm-hmm. of Malta. Mm-hmm. Uh, just so beautiful. Yes, with yes. If I Were You, you went more vibrant with the reds, yeah. um, which really yeah. show Marsha off to her best. Um, yeah. You know, with getting to know you, using a lot of blue here. A lot of blues yeah, I, in the background. I, I, thought, I thought it was an unromantic movie about romance. You know, I mean, it's not like they, they may feel romance in it, but the movie takes a little bit of a distance from it, particularly since mm-hmm. we have the breaking the fourth wall where two of the characters talk to the camera. And I thought the blue was nice for that, just to create a, you know, it's like, you know, 
they may feel all hot, but the movie isn't. Yeah, the movie, it's very cool, and you also use a lot of natural light. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that the blues that you use uh, with the paint on the walls and, you know, white trim, so it's blue and white, so you get this outdoorsy, seaside, easy breezy kind of feel as you're watching the film. And you do this with Gina's costuming as her character of Ava, that she starts out in a, in lighter blues, kind of melds into the background, but as she starts finding herself through this drama class and through meeting Simon, um, you start popping her into primary colors, vibrant colors, never prints, always solids. We've got solid yellow, solo, solid yep. red, a vibrant, vibrant blue that she looks stunning in. Um, but I love, you always do this with color, Joan. That becomes. I really appreciate. I appreciate that you notice that because a lot of people don't notice that, and a lot of effort goes into it. Color in your a great great costume person, Jessica Clayton. I mean, she was just amazing what she did. Oh, Jessica's it's perfect, and even the style of the costuming, especially on Gina, um, it's very casual. It's. You know, it's loose. It's roomy. It's what all of us in our 50s and 60s, we want comfort. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. it and it hides, you know, the bumps and the ridges and things like that. And it's those details. And you always make that such an important part. It's a subtle part, but it's such an important part of your films. And especially with the color, color is almost a character in your films. And I love that, Uh, you know, because, you know, I've seen every film you've done. So I've watched. I really appreciate. I have watched this, your use of color in your design. Um, And it's just fabulous. So fabulous. Um, But we don't just have this love story developing of Ava and Simon, both of whom are married. Um, Ava also is, she's facing the fact that she has no job. This brilliant woman in the medical profession now has no job. She's laid off, fired, whatever you want to call it. And a very disinterested husband and daughter and son-in-law, which, and I have to say your casting is so good, Joan, with, Rob Stewart as Ava's husband, Matthew, for his lack of disinterest and the veneer that he has. Um, it just, he made me laugh. Yeah. Yeah. I, he, Rob gave a lovely performance. He really, he really did. I think it's a bit nervous. Like he came on set and was like, Oh, Tony winner, Doug Hodge, you know, BAFTA winner, Gina McKee. And, you know, um, and Linda Cash has won, you know, various awards in Canada <sighs> And that, but boy, Rob really held his own. I thought he did a great job. He did. And Linda Cash playing Simon's wife, Roz. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. she is hilarious. Hilarious. Yeah, wonderful. Um, you know, how difficult was it, first of all, to actually write this script? Because this is also, it's a very light script. Uh, it's not heavy, and it really follows picking out Shakespearean quotes from Romeo and Juliet that set the tone for these, for these acts or, or chapters within yeah. the film. 
How difficult was that? How many times did you read Romeo and Juliet to find the perfect quotes? That was a lot. That was, yes. But actually writing the script was, it was just a pleasure. I, I loved writing the script. And I loved the part where they, you know, talk to the camera. That was, um, I'd never done that before in a script. I've done it in one since then. Um, you know, that was delightful. I wrote um, the character of Roz for Linda Cash because I've worked with her on two movies and I love her. And I wrote the role of Simon for Doug because we dealt with him in another movie. So that kind of helps, you know, when you have specific people in your head. It makes it, you know, it, it does make it easier to write. Yeah, and then you bring in the, the two youngsters, uh, Dylan Llewellyn is Jeremy and Rose Reynolds is Deborah. Those two are the most clueless couple on the planet, and they're about to have a baby. <laughs> yes, yeah, I don't know if you have you ever watched Dairy Girls on on Netflix. Dylan is in that, and he's just taking off now. He's uh, he's in the he plays one of the Sex Pistols in the new miniseries from Danny Boyle. Uh, yeah, Doug kept saying in a few years, we'll all be working for, for this kid. <laughs> wow. He was great. And Rose is great. I mean, they're, they're both, they were both, per- and they look like a couple. I like that. Because sometimes that can be hard, you know, you cast the best people, but then you put them together and like, oh, wait, no. But um, yeah, they really look like a little couple. Oh, they very much look like a couple. But, and the fact that they are breaking the fourth wall. Um, uh, but, you know, the performances that you elicit from the two of them are such an interesting balance with what Gina and Doug are delivering as Ava and Simon. Uh, And I really got a kick out of that, uh, watching how you found that balance between those two couples where the respective spouses of Matthew and Roz, they're more in the periphery. This really comes down to Ava and Simon and the younger Jeremy and Deborah. And watching, how how difficult was it to find that balance between those two couples? Because each is facing challenges. Um, Each has, you know, Simon may not have moral dilemmas, but Ava kind of has moral dilemmas about what she's doing falling in love with somebody else, but not thinking she's in love, but really is falling in love as, as Juliet. Um, you know, that had to be a challenge to find a balance between those. Yeah, I, I see all movies, that, at least all the movies we do, is at core about moral dilemmas. Like people throw around the term rom-com and I don't, I don't like the term. I don't, I don't care about the term. You know what I mean? I just feel at the core of, of, of pretty well any movie is a moral dilemma. Yeah. And here they, be, they become very personal. And the way you structure this of having the dynamic of Jeremy is confused. He doesn't know what to do. And who of all people does he bond with and pour his heart out to but Simon? Not knowing what's going on between Simon and, you know, and Ava. And it just, the way that you write this, Joan, it just, the inherent humor that comes out of it is so refreshing and so delightful to see and experience. Well, life is pretty pretty funny. (laughs) Especially as you get older, you do realize life is pretty funny. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know, if you don't laugh, you got to cry. So you might as well yeah. laugh. Um, 
You know, yeah. and of course, your wonderful daughter, Marin, has a part in the film again. No, no, that's my niece. Your that niece, Marin. Niece. Your daughter's the lawyer. Yeah, that's my niece. Your daughter. Yeah, my daughter's a lawyer. That is my niece. And Marin yeah. makes. So my, and my niece is and my niece is four months pregnant there, but you can't see it at all. Oh my goodness! Oh wow! Look at all these wonderful things happening for you! Wow! Yeah. This is great. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I'm very I'm very proud of this movie. I think this movie really, it, you know, I, I it really works, and I think it says something. You know, uh, I, I think it does say something about life and relationships and getting older that, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite proud of this. I, I so love this film. Um, and as much as I've loved your others, I think this one is right up there with a previous engagement. Um, Thank you. You know, for me, these are your two, the two greatest films. Uh, and I just, I just can't get enough of them. And of course... You have Bruce Worrell back as your cinematographer. Yeah, yeah, he's very good. He is excellent. You know, what were you looking for in working with Bruce to develop your visual tonal bandwidth with getting to know you? Because it is, it's light, it's bright, it's breezy. This is the kind of story that could have gone very dark. It could have gone Shakespearean dark. Um, yes. <laughs> but it didn't. You kept this so light. So I'm curious about your conversations with Bruce and how the two of you came up with this visual design. Well, Bruce is actually the quietest guy on the planet. So more, it's more like a little hand gestures and nudges and grunts is how you actually communicate with Bruce. <laughs> but somehow it gets through to him, and I start to understand what he says, and what he's grunting about, and it makes sense. But, um, yeah, he knew the tone, and the big thing that's important to me is to never have the actors feel like props. You know, so often people do some really complex, fancy shot, which distracts the audience. You know, they're looking at the camera work. The actors on set just feel like, you know, puppets being moved around. So what Bruce and I really, really work hard on is, is the actors feeling comfortable. And there is an ease, except where we are supposed to have nail-biting tension. Is somebody going to get caught? The kitchen, yes. the kitchen scene is to die for. Um, with Ava and Simon, Simon bailing her out because Ava can't cook. She can't cook yeah. worth a darn. And I, yeah. I, I pity the poor person who had to clean that kitchen with that tomato sauce that was getting plastered everywhere. Actually, Gina and I did some of that cleaning ourselves. Oh. There was a basic cleaning done, and then we were doing that. And Gina says, you know, there's still some tomato sauce there behind the <laughs> stove. And I went, oh, my goodness, there is. So we both got these cloths from the sink, and we're cleaning it ourselves. Because everybody who's been in the kitchen knows tomato sauce will stain. And Pam, my engineer, she's sitting in the booth nodding her head up and down. Yep. Um, <laughs> and you've had so much yeah. white in those white cabinets. And, yeah, I actually did think about cleaning the tomato sauce when I saw it on the cabinets. Um <laughs> <laughs> You think like me, you think like Gina, exactly. We've had to clean that tomato sauce. We know what it is. Yeah, yeah. it's like, oh, I saw that, and the, uh, the first thing I thought of is, oh, my God, who's cleaning that? Um, so, <laughs> but it's just the, that visual lightness just lets 
lets the actors and lets the characters just flow. And it's so beautiful to see Joan. And then well, you... And, and the thing, a thing with Bruce is he can also keep it quite bright and still he's, he's so skillful that it's still flattering to the actresses. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? He's, he's never cruel. He's never cruel. And some... Like, uh, you know, he's not young either. Some of, some of the young ones come in and, you know, they'll just put really harsh light on and then they feel uncomfortable. Because we, wouldn't we all, right? If you're going to have a, your face blown up that fake, we'd all be self-conscious. So I like the way that Bruce is, is always very, very kind to the actors. You know, as we learn from watching Fran Drescher is the nanny, there are two kinds of light that women love, candle and moon. And <laughs> <laughs> that should be everyone's mantra. Cinematographers, that should be your mantra out there for for the ARP aged uh, woman. Uh, <laughs> yeah, another element of this film, Joan, that you really, I just I fell in love with, is Kenneth Harrison's score. There are some of the greatest musical motifs in here. Whenever it it's got a very lilting fun. Regency or medieval English feel with some of these motifs, very Shakespearean, but with frivolity. And yeah, he's he's an amazing talent. Really, just astonishing. I mean, what were you looking for musically with this one? Because you have varying tones. You want to catch the fun in the music of what the the play on the play that you're actually creating here with the older actors playing the couple normally perceived as 15 and 16 years old. So there's inherent lightness, there's fun in that, and the music captures that. But then, of course, we have some real-life issues, and even then, nothing gets too dark. It still stays light, but without that playful frivolity um, in the acting scenes in the classwork and then in a lot of the earlier engagements between Ava and Simon. So I'm curious what you were looking for in working with Kenneth for this film. I'm I'm incredibly lucky and we kind of stumbled on Ken. Like he's 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 actually a, a very successful psychiatrist who does this on the side and also has like a rock band with his wife. Like he's oh my. an amazing guy. He's brilliant. What? I said, oh, my. <laughs> yes, I know. It's it's amazing. And I just, you know, I like one of his songs that I saw for, for the, you know, end credits of the movie several, several movies back. And so, you know, I just emailed and, you know, I just thought it was some, some little band. And I got to know this amazing guy who's so talented. And he he's the most prolific. He, he, he constantly sends me things. I have things on my computer from Ken. I haven't even had time to listen to yet. He sends all these amazing oh. pieces. He gives me like a mass of stuff. So I just put it roughly in the movie. And then I go back to him, you know, could I have more of this, please? And could you do a variation on that one? And what about this? And um, and he just comes back with more amazing stuff. He's just astonishing. I have to say, I think this is my favorite score out of all of your films. Yes, I it's think, mine too. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. I, I, it's a just he did a lovely, lovely job. It, the minute that it, the, the film starts, and the minute that we get, you know, the first title card with a Shakespearean quote from Romeo and Juliet, and I hear the the music, and I'm I, I'm immediately transported back to you know 
the Globe Theater and the days of the Bard and the fun and the and the frivolity. Um, it's just perfect, so perfect, Joan. It just and, I, and, and and Ken gets the movies. Like I I find that's a big thing. Like sometimes I work with some composers and. Honestly, particularly for movies with older women, they get too sentimental, and you know, and it doesn't really mm-hmm. work out. You know, I, I I hate that. You know, and and that and and Ken, when he first saw the movie, he sent me an email back, and he said, you know, it's you really capture how life can be like a how love can be like a disease. And I went, oh yes, you got the movie. <laughs> well, and what's also great about this is when you watch Gina as Ava, she's so light and effortless. Uh, and she even plays, you know, the harried, you know, it's like, oh, my God, I can't cook. I can't make dinner for these people. You know, they may they, they think she's in a cooking class. I can't cook. Um, and yeah. the hair isn't always perfect. It's must at times, especially when she's cooking uh, and doing other things. But <laughs> it's and she would ask for that. On one thing, she'd say, can I please have a button that's missing? You know, like that was a nice touch. She she wanted it to be like a a real person. Yeah, because of course, if she can't cook, she can't sew either. So, and she's been a professional her whole life. So, who's going to sew the buttons on? Surely not husband Matthew. He's not going to lift a finger to do anything. Uh, Surely (laughs) not the incapable and inept daughter Deborah, and definitely and definitely not son-in-law Jeremy. Uh, No, no. So, yeah. She's not going to have buttons. Buttons are going to... No, no. Hair may be unkempt. But these are the little details that make your film so welcoming and so embraceable, Joan, because they're real. These are real people in your films. I can... I, with yeah, every I think fi- that's important. Yeah. Every film of yours, there is somebody in your film and a situation I can identify with. And a lot of, uh, especially a lot of women that I know can also, but even guys. Um, Of course, yes, many guy friends of mine have said, you know, when I've shown them a previous engagement or they've gone looking for it after I tell them they have to see it, it's like, well, I can't be as sexy as Jackie. No, that's true. You can't. Um, But it might help you heighten your game as you're out there pursuing. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) But everything about your films and the characters and the situations, they're relatable. We don't have to imagine it. These are worlds that we inhabit, that we live in every single day. And I hope so. That's what I try. I, I just try to show life pretty well as it is with maybe a couple more laughs, but, you know, life's pretty funny. Oh, t- Yes, it is. Now, what was the most challenging thing, besides reading Romeo and Juliet umpteen thousand times, what was the most (laughs) challenging thing about bringing a grand romantic gesture to life? You know, I, I, it was a, it was a remarkably smooth movie without, without challenges. Like it really clicked in. Like, you know, we had, I wrote it for Doug, worked with Doug before he said yes right away. And then I wanted Gina and fortunately she had the same agent as Doug. So Doug got on the phone with her and talked her into doing it. And, um, you know, and, you know, I watched uh, uh, Dylan Llewellyn and Gary Girls, and I was like, oh, he would be perfect for Jeremy, and even went on tape for it and said yes right away. So 
I, this one really wasn't without friction. I mean, the biggest thing I can remember is that we bought all these copies of Romeo and Juliet for the students and shipped them up to where we were shooting and they never arrived. So we were oh. hustling around with one copy of Romeo and Juliet for anyone who hadn't memorized it. And oh, my. Handing it back and forth between takes. But I think that was actually our biggest challenge on this one. We got lucky. Wow. So now when did you film this one? Did you film it during the pandemic? Did you get it no, in before? before. Just before, and then um, I, di- I didn't, I tried to do post, you know, at, at a distance, and I absolutely hated that. So we waited until we were, you know, fully vaxxed. And then I went, got to go back in the big room and do the sound mix and, you know, do the final color work and everything. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my. What kind of delay was that for you before you could do that? That had to that, be. A- yeah, that was like. A year and a half, two years, I think was a long... But, you know, time has no meaning after COVID, right, though? Right? No, it's... Do any of us know what time is? And we're all turning into what that TV show, Time is a Flat Circle, now, I think. We're all, uh, we're all confused on time. Oh, tell me about it. It's like, I actually... I woke up this morning, just without the... I woke up at 4.47 this morning, and I was in such a daze, and I thought, Oh my God! It's Tuesday. I gotta watch the Academy Award nominations at five eighteen, <laughs> and then I get up and I start walking across because I had fallen asleep on the couch with "Murder She Wrote" on at midnight, uh, and okay. <laughs> and I start walking and I see my bag, my bags of stuff that I bring to the studio with with all of my set decor, decor and my notebooks, things like that, and I'm looking and I went, oh. Oh, I didn't take the bag with the div- with the screeners in it to display. And then but I make it all the way into the kitchen to turn on the water to make some tea and it dawned on me. Oh, it's not Tuesday. I didn't miss my show. It's <laughs> it's Monday. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, That's life after COVID, right? Oh, <laughs> I, it's you know, every it's it doesn't feel like two years has gone by when you start thinking about oh yeah well I did that oh no I did that in 2019 that's three years ago I did that um it's very I think this is the biggest problem everyone's going to have yeah no I know I know I before honestly before this interview I said to David when exactly did we film Grand Romantic Gesture? I don't remember what year it was. <laughs> did David remember? That's the big question. Yes. Yes, he remembers those things, fortunately. Yeah. Well, that's what he's there for. That's why he gets yeah, the big yeah. bucks as the producer. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, I do have to ask you quickly about one of the most hilarious scenes. Simon gets drunk. Simon and his balloons and his limo. How difficult was that to execute? Because, number one, it's not easy for someone to play drunk. Ben Kingsley. No, but he can, he can do it. Yeah, He's Ben, ben Kingsley went through a whole explanation to, with me once about how difficult it is because of having to hit your mark and things that are in the room or wherever. And here I'm watching Doug, and he was... So excellent. And then all of those balloons. And I just kept thinking, oh, God, I hope they didn't have to do three or four takes. 
<laughs> well, I always do safety takes. But you might be interested in a previous engagement in that because you may recollect Juliet had to play drunk in it. Mm-hmm. She had. She said she couldn't play drunk, and that was actually Checky Cario taught her turn around in a circle first and get dizzy, and then you can play drunk. So that's actually what Juliet did. Um, but not Doug. Doug. Doug's played drunk, I think, plenty of times. Doug had, <laughs> Doug had no problem playing Doug at all, uh, playing drunk at all. But the balloons, I just written in the script, there's balloons. I didn't really think through. And then Doug, Doug is like, more balloons, more balloons. More oh, my balloons. God. He said, I'll get in the car first. Now push in the balloons after me. So he loved he loved playing with the balloons. And I, and I noticed it there again. What colors are, are most of the balloons? Blues? yellows yeah yeah some greens in there and blue and yellow of course make green so you kept your color palette going even with the balloons yeah yeah and it was and it was and that was also one of those fun nights when we're sorry pardon oh no i didn't say anything i get a bit of sense oh okay uh that was fun night actually because we're doing that like at midnight you know, because they had to wait for it to be dark, and then all the neighbors came out. So while we were actually filming Doug coming out with the balloons, you know, there were across the road, there were all of these, you know, children staying up late for it and everything. Nights like that are actually a lot of fun to shoot. Oh, my God. So you actually shot night for night? Yeah, we shot night for night, yeah. I, why am I not surprised? I'm not surprised. Of course you would. And it was funny because one of the balloons breaks and Doug reacts to it. And I think my, people might think that's something we did in quotes. But, no, we were all like, how did Doug make that balloon break? And because uh, and he does this great reaction to it like he's been shot or something. And that, that was just the brilliance of, of Mr. Doug Hodge. He is, he is a genius. He is absolutely. He is a gem. He is a gem. And watching him play um, opposite Gina is just you just fall in love with him. You can't yeah, help but like him. Together. You know, his puppy dog look and his puppy dog eyes and be it as Romeo or be it as Simon. It's like, oh, you feel so sorry for him and you root for the two. I was rooting for the two of them the entire film. Um, you know, it just because they are so engaging together. It's like, oh, I want them. I, they get in the kitchen together and they're just so f- at ease and embraceable. And I just I just love it. I love this film so much, Joan. Well, thank you. I appreciate that so much. I really do. And then over the years, your support for our films has really meant the world to us. Uh, not everybody makes films that I watch them and it feels like they were made for me. Your films oh, make me feel that way. Every one of your films. Oh, I'm really glad. Um, now, what are you working on now? We go to camera in less than a month on another movie. Um, it's a little bit terrifying. Um, yeah, after COVID, it'll be like my first time on a plane. Um, yeah, where we've got one with a wonderful Canadian actress, Sonia Smith, is the lead. It's about a, you know, a widow um, you know, struggling with her husband's death, and she does start to do these wacky things that really offend her family and her friends, her children, and, uh, you know, really looking forward to it. It's called Better Days. And where are you filming this one, in Canada? Yeah, in Canada, yeah. No, Sault Ste. Marie, which is the same place we shot Grand Romantic Gesture. It's, um, it's about a one-hour flight north of Toronto. That's a beautiful area. That, I mean, it's, yeah. that neighborhood there looks so nice. 
the neighborhood they're walking through. Obviously, they oh, yeah. Yeah. just it so clean, so nice. People had washed cars and everything. <laughs> That's Canada. I just lovely. And even the motel did not look skeevy. Yeah, it was funny because I talked to the owner of the motel, and you know, and I'm saying, "Oh, it's a it's a romantic movie and all this," and then and then he says, "Yeah, well, then what do they have to go to a motel for?" (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God! Oh, Joan, this has been so much fun getting to talk to you again. We don't do it enough. No, no, we really don't. Oh, this has been so wonderful, and of course, everyone can see a grand romantic gesture. Tomorrow. 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 It is out tomorrow. Just in time for Valentine's Day. That is true. Yes. And I think it's a perfect film for Valentine's Day. Ah, thank you. It's just, and you know I'm going to watch it again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And will this be coming out on DVD and Blu-ray at some point? I think. That Gravitas does that. It's out from Gravitas, who are a great distributor, by the way. Yeah, they They're are excellent to work with, and that, and um, and that. I think they also put out a DVD and Blu-ray, but I'm not sure. Oh well, I hope so because I will. I will have to add that to my collection um, when it comes out. So, oh, Joan, a joy, an absolute joy, and please give my best to the erstwhile David. I will indeed. And I can't wait to talk to you again in the future. And good luck on the on the shoot. Okay, thank you. We might need it. So oh. thank you very much. Thank you so much, Joan. Bye-bye. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was the incredible Joan Carr Wigan talking a grand romantic gesture. Now, we were supposed to have Cole Spector calling in. Uh He has not called as yet. I have no indication of where he might be. Uh, So, what what do you think we should do, Pam? All right. Well, okay, we're going to shift gears then. uh, And we're going to jump into... We're going to do... We're going to hear my exclusive interview with Tim Kirby, the director of... Last Looks. Last Looks just opened on Friday. Uh, Charlie Hunnam, Mel Gibson, Rupert Friend, Lucy Fry, Clancy Brown. It is a whodunit. Um, Mel Gibson play is absolutely hilarious as an actor. Um, Alistair Pinch, who is accused of murdering his wife. And he's a big TV star. And he plays a judge. Um... So his studio boss, played by Rupert Friend, uh, Wilson, wants this former LAPD officer who was uh, unceremoniously removed after an incident years earlier. Uh, He is brought in. His name is Charlie Waldo, played by Charlie Hunnam. He is brought in to solve the crime of uh, the murder of... Alistair Pinch's wife and get Alistair off the hook. This unfold, Charlie is, he captures the vibe of old school gumshoe. Um, just so much fun. 
But Mel Gibson steals every scene as Alistair Pinch. He is so over the top. He, if you saw him in Dangerous last year as uh, an alcohol and drug-addled um, psychiatrist treating Scott Eastwood's character, if you like that performance, you're going to love this one even more. He is amazing. I just, I just laughed the whole way through with him. But this whole whodunit, it celebrates, it's written by Howard Michael Gould, and it celebrates the eccentricities of people. And it melds the police procedural with a madcap mystery with kind of a Roger Rabbit feel, uh, the noir gumshoe aspect, the acerbic comedy that Gibson gives to Alistair Pinch, and a thriller aspect. Um, The production values are excellent. Jeremy Reed is the production designer, which is superbly done. Uh, Cinematographer is Lyle Vincent, whose work you may recognize from the movie Kate uh, on Netflix. He is... He does an amazing job here. He keeps things light physically and emotionally with the emotional visual tonal bandwidth. And uh, there is, you would think with a film like this, you might have use of negative space and some darkness. You don't. Everything is light. It's fun. But you have some serious undertones. And the scoring is by Peter Nashel, who did I, Tonya, uh, and Book Club. And it just bounces along. The movie is fun, fun, fun. It is not rocket science. It is pure fun. So, without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with director Tim Kirkby talking Last Looks. Hey, Debbie, how are you? I am so excited to speak with you, Tim. Oh, bless you. I'm very excited to speak to you. I am such an admirer of your television directorial work uh, and have oh, been. Sorry, Debbie. And ha- on. Thank you. Thank you. And have been. Thank you very much. And now to see what you've done with Last Looks. This is so much fun. You've got a real old fashioned gumshoe quality to it. Mel Gibson is hilarious. I mean, beyond hilarious, with this um, ridiculous acerbic wit and pomposity to him. The whole thing is just, it is fun. That is the word for this film. It is fun. And what you do so often when you've got a mashup like this where you've got a noirish sensibility and then you've got comedic notes... They go the more upstanding and even toned, uh, like a Nick and Nora Charles thin man kind of kind of thing. But here, and plays with shades of gray visually and emotionally. Here, what I love that you and your DP, what Lyle and you do, you keep the visual tonal bandwidth and the emotional bandwidth light. You light this. It's brightly lit. You don't go into negative space. You keep the colors a little bit saturated. So the whole film just speaks fun and upbeat lightness. That everybody is having fun. This may be a murder mystery with a bunch of other mysteries underneath it. But it's so light and so charming. 
um, which is a great compliment on Lyle's work, having seen what he did with Bad Education and with Kate, which is super saturated, but really leans into the darkness. Yeah, you're right. That's lovely. All what you said, it's really nice to hear that. And thank you for saying that. And uh, it's exciting that someone gets it. Because <laughs> um, a lot of effort, you know, a lot of discussions and many viewings of stuff and talk, talking uh, gets you to the point of, you know, day one on the set. <laughs> and um, it's so important for me to find your warriors it, when you do a production like-minded people who are on the same frequency who <laughs> trust and understand and, and listen <laughs> and take an idea and, and and push it somewhere visually interesting or not you know and those choices whether to go handheld or whether to put it on the sticks or do it in a wanna uh, shoot anamorphic shoot not you know all those you know I, I the only reason i'm here doing what i do is through instincts uh, and i rely on my instincts and uh, and, and, and it's done me well. And, and this is a film which was really quite tricky to sort of get those, um, those flavours and get those tones right, um, especially when you're making a film about Los Angeles and we, did, we shot the film in Atlanta. So it was sort of <laughs> trying to emulate and try and find locations that were sort of similar. Um, and if, they, if we couldn't find them, then I'd just try something completely different. Um, like, I don't know whether you noticed, but the interior of the police station looks more like New York, and then the exterior looks like some sort of brutalist building. But it kind of works because, you know, when there's sort of smoke and mirrors of storytelling, you know, the, 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 the audience aren't looking at that point. They're just with Waldo, uh, enjoying the, the ride. And I try to sort of, when we had a dramatic scene, try and undercut it with some humour at the end of it um, and just sort of cast actors who uh, would bring some life into the part. Like I think the, the part of Don Q was written quite seriously and this young, brilliant actor called Jacob Scipio walked in and did something that no one else was doing and I loved it and all of a sudden he owned that character. Um, and uh, and, and he, he was great. And, and all of a sudden, you're right, because then it becomes fun um, in a sort of true romance kind of vibe where, where um, you just don't know what's, what, what's going to happen next and who he's going to meet. And, uh, and I'm, I'm glad you, you responded to the way you did. And just the thing about Mel with the Alistair Pinch, um, yeah, you know, we, we spoke about uh, the, the, the Royal Shakespeare Company actor uh, version of Alistair Pinch, which is the sort of, you know, um, the kind of Oliver Reed, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Richard Burton. Uh, and if you see, you know, Oliver Reed interviewed or off screen, he's, he's completely on a different frequency. Yes. Um, and, and so we thought, well, yes, let's go for it. Because if, if you don't do that, then, then there's a danger that Pinch can be just a bit shallow, I guess. And, and, you know, there are moments that Mel put in there that show the real side of the character, which are nuanced and, and delicate and raw. Um, so they are there, but, you know, as we all know, actors have to put on this front because that's how the world sees them. And, you know, and, and, and 
sometimes in as a pinches case it drives you to uh you know obsession and alcoholism and and then he found himself caught up in this um in this sort of situation uh, where he can't find a way out and so yeah and i think i think you're right it's really it was really important to not linger in the dark too long because it's very very easy to do that um given the nature of of the murder and the nature of Alistair as a character and and the nature of what Charlie Charlie's past it's very easy to make a very dramatic version of this film but then who who wants to see that because it's like then you're into then you're into television I think where you know it's it's important to sprinkle the comedy where possible um and to uh sort of mess around you know a lot of the takes we just messed around like mm-hmm. the, take where, the take where Mel pops up from the magazine where Charlie's looking at the room mm-hmm. um, you know it was just like I just and also what I love about Mel and Charlie they'll do anything you know once you have a trust of actors they're putty and they, they'll just try anything so it was the last take and I said it'd just be weird if like if you popped up from nowhere and instead of interrogating and questioning it saying yes but that makes no sense where would he have come from he goes he says yeah all right well let's do it then we did it and then he came up then he came up with a line you always put your boots on that he just came up with that line so they're very playful that you know caught these actors in a playful mood and that's the best place to have an actor is the more relaxed um the more open and playful they are then they experiment and then they um then they then acting becomes fun that's so evident on screen tim but one of the great things and you talk about smoke and mirrors it's not just smoke and mirrors in making atlanta work for la got the smoke and mirrors of the character duality every character here is playing their own game of smoke and mirrors every single one and you know you mentioned jacob's performance is don q he plays it so perfectly with an air of mystery but then there's another side that we don't see until the third act and then we get this big reveal and your heart just melts similarly with mel as alistair he is this buffoonish character except when acting with his with the little girl who plays gabby alistair's daughter but then we get to the play of Rumpelstiltskin, and you have this great shot of the audience of kindergarten parents, all with their cell phones out, all looking through and filming the play. But for Alistair, who is sitting there, his arms crossed, hands clenched, leaning forward, intently watching his little girl. And yeah. it's those little gems that you capture on camera that celebrates the life and the fun that Mel puts into things that that Jacob's bringing, that Rupert is just a hoot and a holler. But it's those little moments that really elevate this film. And if people just watch, these just come naturally. And it is so beautiful to see unfold, Tim. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate it. It's really lovely to hear because... You hope, you know, that's your intention. You hope that people respond to these moments. And I'm very, very open with actors. I, I like them. I like suggestions. 
Uh, I like them trying things, um, and you know, usually their instincts are correct. And uh, so it's nice to sort of have that connection with them. And, and there's a lot of those moments in there. You know, there's a lot of moments mm-hmm. in the film where I just, you know, I just will always do a, 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 a silly take, which will just um, off off script, just to just to try something, and, and usually it ends up. You know, if everyone's in the right headspace, usually it ends up in the in, in the film. But yeah, but Mel's incredible in this film. I mean, I just love seeing the sorrow in his eyes. And, um, you know, there's a there's a scene at, um, after where where Wardo's just sitting down with uh, Don Q at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually in a film, that scene will be cut out because why are we sitting down again? But then it's then it goes down. Then it just goes back to those films of the seventies where, yeah, why not have a chat after something, something crazy that's just happened? Why not just sit down and put your feet up and have a have a one to one with someone? And, um, and that fits with and, these characters. That fits perfectly yeah. with this story and these characters. Every everyone is not who they seem to be. That's right. He's, they become friends. Mm-hmm. On some level, they're friends. You know, and, and sometimes your enemy is your friend, you know, and, and you can't, you know, I, I find that, you know, LA has that sort of, has that sort of uh, potential where on first impressions, you, you're not sure, you know, you're not sure, uh, you just don't know what to believe. Mm-hmm. And I think with... Hopefully, a lot of the characters in last books, like if Cecil Jamashidi, for instance, like he's sitting there, you just don't know anything about the guy. He gives so little away, um, and you just don't know why. Uh, yeah, just like, and then then he pops up. Yeah, but you know, I think it's. Um, I'm really pleased that you connected to the characters because they're they're they're, they're they're just as important. All the supports. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. They, they, have a, they have a role to play in Waldo's story. They, they, you know, it's all connected. Everything's connected. Two things I have to ask you about before Grace unceremoniously makes terminates our call. I've got to ask you about Peter's scoring. It bounces along. It's great. But hand-in-hand hand with the beat and the rhythm of the score that you have is the work of your editors, of Joe Landauer and Nicholas Monsoor. Joe's work, I have I fell in love with back, little indie that he did years ago called Teeth. So I'm familiar, and same thing with Nicholas's television work on Brockmire, which you also directed episodes on, uh, Key and Peel. So the music and the editing and the comedic beats is such a perfect marriage here so I'm curious what you were looking for musically and how did that fit in with the challenge of editing for comedy? Well, the editing process took a long time. Um, Nick started it. I, I, I had known Nick before. He's, an extru- he's a magician. Um, I think, in my opinion, there's, um, there's many good editors, but there's a few great. He is definitely a great editor. Um, but he had to jump away, um, and Joe jumped in, who brought a completely different sensibility. So 
one hand, Nick, Nick's great at comedy. Like he's finding those little nuggets that, that, aren't, that are on the rushes that he's put in, and the timing is brilliant. Mm-hmm. But Joe is incredible at storytelling, and he, you know, it was his idea to um, to push the, the Don Q storyline later into the film because he used to come a lot earlier. Uh, and it was just a brilliant fix that no one had thought about. Uh, and, it, and it played really well. And, you know, even Howard, the writer, was like, wow, I don't know how that, he's managed to do that. So all along, you know, you've got Joe going into every single scene and finding moments to uh, polish um, and and suggest, I always suggesting. I'd walk in and go, what about this? Okay, that's amazing. And, and so we, we try and look in every scene and make every scene count. Um, working alongside with Peter Nashell, who uh, did amazing work on Itonia, and uh, I didn't want a, a jazz soundtrack. I wanted uh, a, a sort of a soundtrack that sort of mapped and tracked Wardo's emotion, uh, so that we're we're present with him. Uh, and I wanted it to change, and I wanted it to to loosen up and. Um, and, and be free, almost experimental at the end where he's, he's, he's scrabbling around with his gun and it goes very, very abstract and drums kind of all over the place. And, you know, and that's, that's, that's how Wardo's feeling, you know. So, so on one hand, it started with very, very sort of beautiful, uh, delicate music at the beginning and then, and then had this. So there wasn't one specific, uh, sort of, tune to the film um i wanted a lot of big sort of commercial tracks that, that weren't recognizable as commercial tracks in there to, to, to add to the anarchy of the film so the end the end title sequence um kill of the night um the the title sequence music and just wanted those those big gritty authentic uh grainy acoustic bands Mm-hmm. Um, like Black Keys. In fact, the Black Keys is in there, but too expensive. But just to, <laughs> just to echo, echo how how Wardo is, how how down and dirty he is. Yeah. But it all sort of like it, it all hung on him, you know, with whatever he was feeling at the time. That was the driving force. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh. Tim, I know Grace. She's texting, texting, texting. That we have to, we have to wrap and go. All I can say is thank you so much for directing this film. I love Last Looks. It is so so funny, and I hope to see you do more feature film directing. I love your television work, but you really have a knack for putting it all together as a feature film. So that we see oh, a, a oh. story play out in full. I really, oh, I oh, love it. My agent. That's <laughs> amazing. Thank you. Oh, Tim. No, no, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank and, um, you. I think it's given me the strength, last looks, to um, to really, really delve into the next film, which I'm teeing up. And uh, yeah, so so uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm very excited because last looks was a challenge, huge challenge, and and. Hopefully there's something in there, and it's lovely to hear you speak. You're the you're who I'm. What you said is how I why I make it, you know, and and you've responded so well. Thank you. Oh well, thank you, Tim, and I hope I get to talk to you again in the future. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Tim, so much. You're very welcome. Bye, Bye-bye. And that was director Tim Kirkby talking about Last Looks. If you want to have a good time with a film, check out Last Looks. It is out now, available now. It is on VOD. It's actually on Spectrum because I checked. Um, streaming, it's, it's really, it's a lot of fun. And you will laugh. Uh, if you laugh at nothing else, you will laugh at Mel Gibson. Because he is hilarious. Um, you know, before we go today, I and for the record, we don't know where Carl Spector is. His publicist uh, on the film does not know where he is. So we move on. Um, the Razzie of nominations were announced today. And I would be remiss not to point out that they have a new category this year. It is called Worst Performance by Bruce Willis in a 2021 movie. Uh, if you weren't keeping track, Bruce had eight films come out last year. Uh, he already has two out now in 2022. And another one is on the way because I just watched it the other night. And actually, I really like it. Um, I know the Razzies are comedic. Uh, but by the same token... Not all eight performances by Bruce Willis in 2021 were that bad to qualify for a Razzie. Uh, a couple maybe, but I would attribute a big part of that to the director of the film uh, rather than Bruce's performance with the limited amount of screen time that he had. So uh, tomorrow morning, Oscar nominations are out. 518 in the morning, they are starting. Uh, so can't wait to find out what those are going to be. And then for the next six weeks, it's going to be madness. You'll be deluged with advertisements for Oscar voting, uh, for the nominees. So we'll all see what happens tomorrow morning. I'm pretty sure that, um, the picture that the Razzies gave the most nominations to for worst was Diana, the musical, uh, Christopher Ashley's film. It truly isn't the worst film from last year. Obviously, nobody saw, you know, Nebulous Dark. But uh, Diana the Musical is not the total train wreck they make it out to be. It does have very high production values, uh, costuming, and the performances are what they are. They're funny and fun. You know, you you have to look at the intent sometimes. Um... But, yeah, so the Razzies will be interesting as well to see who walks away with those and if anybody shows up to accept them. We do know people will show up to accept their Oscars. Uh, And don't forget, Santa Fe Film Festival is still going this week through the weekend. Steve Balderson, Alchemy of the Spirit, world premiere this week on Saturday, and he is speaking uh, at the festival on how to find an investor on Friday. So, and a lot of other great films happening. And you can attend the festival virtually online. You can get tickets for single performances online. So, check that out. And then, of course, tomorrow, a grand romantic gesture. You definitely want to see that one. All right, that is all the time we have. Until next week. Who do we have? Oh, next week we're supposed to have two live bodies. Joining us. You want to take bets now? Pam's laughing. All right. 
Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.